This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Welcome to another edition of BNE IntelliNews' A Window on the East. Today I'm joined by Arash Azizi, doctor now. Yes, you recently got your PhD and uh, author of several books on Iran. Uh, September 16th is the one-year anniversary of the death of Massa Jina Amini, who died at the hands of Iran's uh, so-called morality police. Um, Arash has spoken extensively on the topic, and it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Can you tell us more about what happened in the past 12 months? So in September of, of 2022, as you mentioned, Mahsa Jina Amini, a young Iranian woman from the Kurdish town of Saqqaz in, in, in Western Iran was traveling in Tehran, um, you know, for her birthday. She, she was almost, two, she was a week before her 22nd birthday when she got off a metro station. And in Iran, um, there are these, uh, there's this program called the Guidance Patrol, or sometimes translated as moral police, as you said. Um, so the moral security division of the police puts these vans all around the different parts of Tehran and other cities um, to arrest women who are supposedly having what, what they call improper hijab. Now, hijab, of course, is, is a, a wailing in Islamic tradition. And Iran is the only country in the world now with the addition of the, the Taliban's, the unrecognized Taliban regime in Afghanistan, which enforces it. It forces all women to cover their hair. Um, and their hands and um, sorry, their arms and then uh, basically every, every, you know all their body. Um, so Mahsa was uh, one, you know one of the women who came out of this uh, uh, Martyr Haqqani metro station in, in somewhere in Tehran, in northern Tehran, and she was arrested by this uh, by this morality police uh, vans and she was thrown into a van. Um, and this happens a lot, but. Um, and a lot of women are torn in these vans, they're beaten up, um, and this is very normal. But this time, the beating was so bad that she went into a coma, and, and she died a few days later. Um, and this led to, uh, you know, it was a spark that really lit the fire and led to the largest street protest movement, you can say, in the history of the Islamic Republic since 1979. Um, and I think the reason for that is that a lot of Iranians... Um, just felt so much for the mountain injustice and the arbitrary rule of this um, goons of the regime, these men with guns who decide everything in the society, including whether someone can live or die because they don't like how, um, you know, because effectively they don't like how she's uh, dressing up. And upon her death, there were protests across the country, um, which took several months before the uh, regime were able to uh, quash them. Do you believe that potentially there is a another spark on its way or, you know, have they successfully uh, petered it out? So in the last, so in the last few months, um, as I said, this was the largest, most serious challenge the Islamic Republic has faced in many ways. So what happened was um, what happened in um, in the beginning of the movement 2020 was that immediately you had 
tons of demonstrations in in Tehran, in Kurdistan province, all over Iran. Then it spread to Sistan and Baluchistan, the southeast, all over the country. It's very important. The geographical and demographical expanse of this movement was um, with, without precedence, really. Um, we've had movements before in 2009, in 2017, in 2019, in 2020, but none of them really had this kind of expanse. Um, and the slogans were very radical. In fact, one of the earliest slogans was, don't call this a protest, this is a revolution. Um, the slogan, Woman, Life, Freedom, borrowed from left-wing Kurdish movements, quickly came to really uh, capture the kind of revolutionary demands that the Iranian people had. Um, um, but uh, so at the same time, um, while this, the protest really, as I said, put the regime on the back burner for a while, uh, various methods were picked for the first time in, in, a, in a long time. Serious questions of what, what could transition from the Islamic Republic look like were discussed. Um, we had an attempts in general a strike in December. There was a three-day strike, which uh, led to, you know, I would say thousands of Iranians not going to work, but nothing on the level of, of what an actual general strike should look like. Um, so I think what, what we had... Uh, during this uh, last 12 months um, was that Iranians posed the question on, of what could the overthrow of the regime look like. Uh, but also they they came to realize that it's, it's not an easy task. Um, the most important and um, the most pernicious um, wrong belief, unfortunately, that, that exists in Iran and existed certainly in the beginning of the movement was that this was a good thing that this was a leaderless movement because it was a horizontal movement. Movement, the kind of uh, what I really believe um, silly and as I said pernicious belief that has also existed in other countries. There's no single revolution in world history that has ever been successful in overthrowing anything, achieving anything without a degree of organizational leadership. Now, maybe not personal leadership or individual leadership, although that really helps actually, um, but. But the level of organizational leadership. So I think the the movement in Iran, if you will, this movement to get rid of the regime, um, also had a sobering moment. It found out that even with monumental sacrifices, really inspiring scenes of thousands of women burning their hijabs, coming out, fighting the cops on the street, uh, it's obviously not enough to affect the political change. Um, so whether the movement will rise again or not, I think it will. I think even the strategists of the regime themselves confess that none of the contradictions that gave rise and gave birth to the movement in 2022 have been solved. The economic condition continues. Iran's international isolation, which has immense economic consequences, continues. The massive repression continues. The disenfranchisement and um, making women second-class citizens, which is half of Iran, uh, continues. So all of this uh, means that um, there is still... uh, it's a material for protest, and there will be protests. However, um, it is also a reality that Iranian civil society has been rather successfully destroyed by the by the Islamic Republic. Um, Iran Iranians don't have organizations inside the country. Unfortunately, the millions of Iranians abroad who do enjoy democratic freedoms have failed um, rather miserably to build um, any institution. I just wanted to tap into that because you were at the time. Um heavily involved with the outside um, discourse on the situation in Iran. Um, And there were several different groups trying to merge together, led by the former crown prince, Reza Pahlavi. Um, 
but it all fell apart. Um, can you go into more detail about that? Because you've mentioned that in other interviews recently. So as I said, you know, inside Iran, there are many important courageous activists, um, women's rights activists, labor activists, trade unionists, writers, um, who I think could potentially put together a large number of people. But they are, of course, they're in prison. Um, anybody who could organize anything in Iran is in prison. So that's why a lot of people were looking to Iranians abroad who won't go to prison if they organize something so that they could organize a uh, alternative to the regime or at least the beginnings of an alternative. So you had a few well-known figures. That's There was Reza Pahlavi, there was journalist and activist Masih Halinejad, who's been an anti-compulsory hijab activist for years and a very sort of influential activist. There was uh, actresses like Nazanin Boniadi and Goldshift Farahani, who are well-known figures in her, who've done um, great human rights work for a long time. There was Ali Karimi, the footballer, who had obviously a mass following. He's one of the best non-footballers in Iran. There was Shir Nebadi, the Nobel Peace uh, Laureate. There was Hamid Esmailiun a dentist and a writer who has been a justice activist for some years after he lost his wife uh, and daughter um, in um, when the, uh, the Islamic regime shot down a, a passenger plane. Yeah, PS752. So these this people that I named, eight of them, um, came together from early 2023. There were some secret meetings. Um, in early 2023, they sort of published a joint tweet Um then in February, they met in a press conference in, in Georgetown University. They had been invited by Georgetown. Um, they had this press conference, and they, they promised that they'll publish a charter um, within a month. And they did uh, in March. But unfortunately, as soon as this charter was published, uh, there was a lot of fights between the followers of this in different figures. Obviously, Pahlavi rather looms large. He is uh, the best-known figure uh, amongst them, he also has a lot of people who act in his name and his supporters. Um, but clearly, a lot of them were not happy with Pahlavi joining with center-left figures, like the ones I mentioned. I also didn't mention Abdullah Mohtadi, the leader of Kamala Party of Iranian Kurdistan, who is an observer party of the Socialist International, sort of a left-wing Kurdish party. He was also part of the coalition. A lot of them were unhappy that he was joining with, as I said, the center-left um, and our leftist uh, figures. And at any rate, the, uh, in what was quickly turned into a rather sad spectacle and a fiasco, um, they, they, what they had formed, this thing was called Alliance for Freedom and Democracy in Iran, or they called it sort of the Mahsa Council after Mahsa Amini. This collapsed in a matter of weeks, you know, not even a matter of months, um, which was sort of um, really shocking. And of course, the best news for the regime. I mean, if you're, if you're the regime, this is the best propaganda victory you can have. You can say, look, when, even when opponents want to come together, they can't hold, uh, hold an organization again, not for six months, not for six years, but they could hardly hold it for six weeks, right? The reason it fell apart, was it because of Pahlavi himself? Because he, was he the outsized figure? It would be it would be easy um, it would be easy to blame it on 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 one person right although I do think he he you're right there was outside figure and that he uh, he has some of the blame but it's but it's not him alone right it's the reality I'll I'll say a couple of things first of all um, it's it's about them working together right um, and being able to compromise a lot of for example you know Masi is is a is a friend um, and you know I have a lot of respect for. Her. Um, but she's an activist, right? And as and then the activist, the only thing you don't do is compromise, right? You attack, you have a cause, you defend it. Whereas politics is the opposite of activism in this way. It's all about the compromise, right? It's it's all about 
um, you should be ready to shove some of your demands. And so some of the supporters of Masi and others also were, were also attacking, uh, you know, Bahlavi um, or, um, you know, on, or other figures. And let me, let me add another thing. Okay, let's say Pahlavi is a problem and his supporters are the problem. Well, why don't the rest of them form something together? Um, you know, and actually the, the, the other thing I should say, none of these figures, none of them have built anything, not a single organization, not a single student organization, not a single, you know, when I say organization, I mean something more than eight people, right? Mm. Uh, none of them have done so. And, you know, this isn't even about, oh, let's say Pahlavists believe that the rest of us are, are terrible and are leftist and they shouldn't work with us. Well, form an organization for yourself, right? Form an Iranian organization, supporters of Pahlavi um, political party or organization that you can say, okay, it has 10,000 members, right? Um, unfortunately, this doesn't exist on, a, on any level. Uh, and I think it's not about um, just blaming one particular figure. I think it's that we lack so far a political culture, really, um, certainly within the opposition. Uh, and I think pernicious, as I said, uh, idiotic ideas, I'm sorry to speak clearly, of that, oh, basically having a political party is a taboo, that it's a good thing when a movement uh, is not, um, you know, doesn't have leadership, doesn't have organization, have been popular. Let me give you an example. You know, Ashkan Khatibi, great singer, a supporter of the movement, I like his work a lot. Recently, he shows up to um, to Venice Film Festival and, you know, there was a sort of a controversy because a, a Palestinian actress sort of brought a Palestine flag, so there was a bit of controversy about it. I don't even want to enter the controversy, but Ashkan Khatibi, in order to answer as part of this, he makes a couple of tweets in one of which he says, well, politics is beneath me as an artist. You know, I think this, I, the reason I bring it up is that it entirely encapsulates the kind of attitude that a lot of Iranian activists have had toward politics, right? They basically believe it's beneath them to join an organization and do the political life that, you know, you, in, whether in Britain or in any other country, you have different political parties, you have different political organizations. So long as we don't change this, we have no chance of wanting to replace the regime. You touch on a really important topic there because, and I don't think it's just Iran. Uh, if you look in several different countries, uh, there's been an aversion to people joining into political movements, parties. You know, there's a new book out this week by uh, Rory Stewart, who spent time in Iran and, uh, you know, was an MP here. And he said, you know, the average age cohort of people of his conservative party at the time were 60 years plus. And I, you know, um, it could be for several reasons. It could be the internet. It could be, um, you know, people just wanting a normal life. That, you know, politics, in a sense, is, you know, you'll burn your fingers. No, so absolutely. I think you have an absolute point, And I think it's definitely not just Iran. In fact, there's another book coming out, some by Vincent Bevins. I don't know what the shape of the book would be. Um, but I think it's about these different movements. He's basically talking about there were tons of street movements, none of which actually leads to much change. And he wants to discuss why. And there's been other work on this as well. Um, and it's interesting to talk about in democratic countries. That's that's a little bit different, uh, right? It's a bit of a different context, although I do think he's actually related. Um, in Britain, you know, for example, a few years ago, whenever you see big movements like, so, you know, let's say the rise of Jeremy Corbyn, whatever we think of him, you know, positively or negatively, but... Or even Brexit. Or Brexit, yes. So, but I mean, with Corbyn, um, with Corbyn, things happened um, when people joined the political party. And with Brexit, actually, you can say the existence of UKIP as a political vehicle uh, was very important, right? And was, was able to really capture things and, of course, sort of 
But what's interesting is they came at the same time. That's right. Yeah. So that, that's right. So you can have, but I mean, as I said, so democratic countries is a slightly different context. But if you want to have, you know, if you want to make societal change, you cannot do it via hashtags. And I think this sounds something very obvious. I don't think it's obvious at all. I think a lot of Iranians and a lot of other people precisely thought they could do it with hashtags. And it would be nice. You don't have to go to meetings. Anyone who's been involved in politics hates meetings, right? You don't have to do anything. You don't have to gather. You don't have to compromise over your differences, most importantly. You can just say some vague things like, I love life, I love women, I love freedom online, and, and it would lead to change. Unfortunately, it's just not how it works. And yes, there are other countries. Let's say the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, what did Black Lives Matter movement here resulted to sort of organizationally? Nothing, unfortunately. When you compare it to the civil rights struggles in the 1960s, you know, there were tons of organizations. They had very clear agendas, right? Um, and, they, and they got them. They passed the Voting Rights Act. They passed the Civil Rights Act. You know, um, they did all these other things. Whereas Black Lives Matter movement, unfortunately, right, had, you know, had no organizational uh, result, if you will, no, nor a clear agenda or even pretense at a clear agenda, right? Do you think that these internet-led uh, movements basically empty out quickly because they're not genuine grassroots movements? On the question of the relationship between social media and, and movements, you know, of course, social media is in a way, first of all, it's just part of our lives now. It's a technology we use just like we use newspapers and radio and television before. Um, but I think it does, it is good to ask, um, uh, you know, so in, in terms of, for example, Black Lives Matter, there was tens of thousands of people coming on the street and, and a lot of demonstrations, you know, I was I was a part of some of these demonstrations. Um, it was it wasn't really social media. It wasn't really social media. Like people would. Um, there was word of mouth. You, you had there was a local community. You knew where to come out. Um, as in particular in the smaller uh, cities. Um, uh, but nevertheless, you can say a sort of a social media mentality has uh, has really affected a lot of uh, a lot of social movements around the world. It's a global thing, isn't it? Absolutely right. So, and I think the idea is, um, you know, I think that. So the problematic is that a lot of people genuinely seem to think that if they, quote unquote, raise awareness about something, something that it's a phrase that I really hate, by the way, uh, because you know, raising awareness has never led to any change. The idea that, oh, if only people, enough people would hear about something, it would, I don't know, magically change. It just doesn't stand the test of reason, right? Sure, it's good. It's part of your strategy, right? Um, like spreading word about anything you know if you're selling gum you need to spread awareness but you also need to have a distribution network um and you need to make good gum right so if you only put the advertisements out but don't do any uh, war, any other work obviously you're not going to be successful the same thing with political movements right um so i think there is this there is this misplaced belief that somehow um spreading word about something um, and shouting about it on social media and all these very performative ways of showing solidarity would lead to change. What we need instead is political strategy. You need a strategy wherever you do anything, right? But somehow it looks like a lot of people have convinced themselves that if they um, if they want to change the world and they can just do it without any strategy, you know, with a tweet or um, with, you know, with simply not thinking about or with thinking they're right. I mean, I think that's a big part of it. You know, it's like the idea is that you're on the right side of history. So it doesn't matter 
if people don't support you. And people will look back and say, well, for example, there was a struggle against apartheid. And there was a time if you spoke against apartheid South Africa, no one supported you. But then things happened. But the question is, okay, how did the apartheid uh, actually was overthrown? By massive amounts of political strategizing and compromise. By the way, that's necessary, right? So I think that's what is lacking. Politics is what is lacking. That you, if you want to change the world, you need to be engaged in politics. There's no other way, right? There's no other way. There's no, you know, you can have movements from below that shake things. But when the actual change happens, there needs to be a political element. And poli- politics doesn't mean, you know, some people put on a suit and like conspire with each other, right? It means shifting power in society. And it means involving citizenry, which is the other important thing. So to go back to Iran... You know, this lack of organization is no joke. If you look at 1970s, for example, right, there were Iranian diaspora was 10 times much smaller, right? But there existed organizations at every level. Iranian Student Association in the United States organized, you know, it was, it was you know, if you were an stu- Iranian student, you had likely been in an ISA event anyone right but today we have tens of thousands of students you know in toronto alone york university has four thousand iranian students this is something any organizer would have dreamt of and there is rather a consensus if you will amongst large numbers of iranians that they hate this regime however there's very little organizing um, and there's very little political strategizing so that's what needs to change right and it will you know, people like Hossein Bastani in Iran have been uh, writing about this. Um, Jack Goldstone, um, as you know, as someone who is sort of an expert on revolutions, have written on Iran and and given interviews to Iranian outlets about this. So um, that's something that we need to wake up to. That if you want political change, you're gonna have to need um, to do political work. The incumbent administration of Raisi, Ibrahim Raisi, has been recently running around the world signing contracts and deals. Um, it's become a member of the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is a security-led uh, pact by China. It's also, uh, in the past week, become a member of the BRICS group of countries, um, and it has a free trade agreement with the Eurasian Economic Union, led by Russia. The administration and the government in Iran is quite clearly aware that it's been backed into a corner in terms of sanctions and they are looking for a route out. So this this is their, you know, I assume their logical route out by teaming up with China, Russia, Brazil and South Africa. These are the uh, non-aligned countries traditionally. But do you think that is any way um, to, a way to placate the people and try and revive the economy which has been suffering terribly for several years now. The real is at a historic low of uh, 500,000 reals to a dollar. So, you know, um, do you think that they've bought time? I mean, they're, they're trying. I don't think it has worked yet because the Iranian economy has much more important problems and because the kind of the degree of gap between the regime and the people is very, very large. So it won't be so easy to fill it, right? If you want to economically buy off a population, you need to do much better than like joining a couple of organizations. Um, but it, it is true that the regime has um, definitely lessened its international isolation. Um, most importantly, uh, it uh, reestablished ties with Saudi Arabia, which is which is a very important bit. In fact, it's now on uh, on the verge of 
possibly doing so even Egypt and Jordan. Um, expanding ties, I mean, expanding ties with Egypt has been on the agenda for many years, different administrations. Um, but I think it's, you know, if Iran has a relationship with Saudi Arabia, it has a relationship with United Arab Emirates, it has a relationship with everybody in the region except Israel, why wouldn't have relations with Egypt? Um, and with Jordan is trickier, but I think it, I think there's actually some sort of different relations already, but, um, you know, to, to expand them. And look, this tells us a couple of things. First of all, sanctions, there is a limit as to, you know, what they can do, right? Um, especially as you start sanctioning more and more countries. You know, if you sanction these countries, well, they can work together, right? Um, There's a tipping point. Exactly, right? So now you have Russia, you have Iran, there's some restrictions on China, there's, of course, Venezuela, there's Belarus, right? So they can sort of trade with each other a little bit. Now, um, and the, basically that has been what's going on for a long time. And let's be real, the most, the sanction regime on Iran is, is pretty extensive, right? Um, but even at its worst, under Trump, it never led to Iran becoming a failed state, right? It's simple. Like, there was never a time where people couldn't find bread in the stores, right? This this didn't come, and it won't come, because uh, it's it's almost impossible for something like that to happen, right? I mean, I guess if you, if you, if you really try, and if you put the most extensive thing, you can, you can try to have that, and the consequences of that will be unpredictable. But the Americans can't wash the borders of Iran. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, and Iran is a country of 80 million uh, it's a country of much talent. You know, it's a country of like, you know, if you're a ruler of Iran and you've kept the rule, you know, you can find enough people that can help you um, or circumvent some sanctions, right? Um, with Turkey, with Russia, which is basically what has happened throughout all these years, right? Um, Iran never became like even Venezuela, right? I mean, Venezuela, mm. you had a failed state situation, which by the way, in Venezuela, Iranians need to learn lessons from it. Venezuela, you had, what, the 20% of the population left. You really had you know, no toilet papers ever anywhere, right? You really couldn't get the most basic goods. And you had a rival government whose president was in Caracas, by the way, not, not in Washington, D.C., and was recognized not just by the United States, but by like half of Latin American countries. It still didn't lead to change because, you know, um, you need to have a political strategy. And again, there, what was the political strategy? That Maduro would somehow pack up his bags and leave, but it didn't happen, right? So, um... So in, the, in terms of the Islamic Republic expanding its diplomatic ties, I think, as I said, it shows there's, there's a limit to how effective sanctions are. And the other thing is, countries of the world, they have a variety of interests. Sure, they don't like the Islamic Republic, right? Um, but they also know they have to deal with it, basically, if, if it's in charge. In fact, even the unrecognized Taliban regime, it's really only unrecognized in name. Everyone hates the Taliban. They think they're reprehensible. Oh, the Chinese today... Um... Sent there, they have an adm ambassador for the first time. Yeah, there we go. Um, and so the the unrecognized Taliban regime has extensive relations with. You know, I think they've had diplomatic meetings with like seventy countries, right? Which is much more than some other countries can do. And of course, uh, you know, somewhere like North Korea is another example of somewhere that is there recognized is a member of the UN, um, has extensive diplomatic ties around the world. And countries would have to sort of deal with it, except that North Korea is in a corner of the world and it's sort of a security problem because of nuclear weapons. Iran is a is not in the corner of the world. It's in the middle of the world. It's a country's stress of hormones. They need to talk with it. I mean, they you know, you can have all these campaigns as you know, cut ties, don't invite them, don't bring them to the UN. But you know, even if they believe that they're total gangsters ruling over the country, well, what would you think? If you lived in a city and half of your city was uh, run by a bunch of gangsters. Uh, you would have to talk to them after a while. 
So it tells you, I think, if you want to know my opinion, I don't think trying to lessen diplomatic ties of Iran or increasing sanctions, I don't think it's a smart move for the opposition. Because number one, whether countries in the world expand their ties or reduce their ties to the Islamic Republic, it won't be primarily because of the pressures of the Iranian opposition, because it doesn't have that kind of power in any country, right? Um, let's say the Iranian-American community, if it was really together and organized and it could affect things. But, uh, you know, I sort of have a piece coming out about this, but that's, how, that's not really the case. What happens is the Iranian-Americans attach themselves to others who have a goal for their own reasons, um, and they, they're used there as an alibi. And I don't think it's bad to have allies, right? You can, you know, in politics, you can even have, you know, it makes for a strange bedfellows, as they say. But we'll be deluding ourselves if we think we can um, sort of affect the policy there. And it's not even clear that the regime being more isolated is better for the, um, for, by isolated, I mean having less diplomatic ties, right? It's not even clear necessarily that it's better for the opposition movement. And at any rate, even if it is better or worse, there are arguments on both sides. Uh, it's not the deal breaker. The deal breaker is building an organized, serious, credible alternative to the Islamic Republic. The deal breaker is organizing Iranians, building membership-based organizations that could that could really mobilize tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Iranians who can push things. These are what brings change, right? Unfortunately, Iranians, just like Palestinians, by the way, use the example of South Africa in the most silly, unserious way. Yes, it would be a great way to think about it. South Africa, some countries put sanctions on it. Uh, the apartheid regime was overthrown. They miss out, you know, as I said, both Iranians and Palestinians and others actually do this. Um, they miss out the parts that, you know, South Africa had their organized opposition that went back to like decades, the African National Congress. It had a serious presence everywhere. It had a very serious agenda. Um, it, there were mass movements inside South Africa led by clandestine trade unions that that brought up hundreds of thousands of people. And they had a very clear political strategy, which included, by the way, negotiations with the apartheid regime and a chance effect that you had the president of the apartheid regime who was so ready to sit down and talk. Yes, partly because of the sanctions, but obviously it takes something more than sanctions for someone like the clerk to win a Nobel Prize with Nelson Mandela to serve as vice president in his government. Right uh, for Nelson Mandela to accept to be in the part of the same government as the party of the apartheid and to take part in these very important tense negotiations and that could have gone anywhere by the way. And of course, many people considered Mandela to be a traitor because of some of the things he gave up in those um, negotiations. But we forget those parts and we just have these easy images of the world that oh, if only we put more sanctions. Um, and I should say, this is added also to the terrible tradition of Iranian conspiracies. I mean, this is a, this is a disease that really needs to be cured, right? Um, there are Iranians out there, tons of them, perhaps many of them. They seriously believe that 1979 was caused, um, you know, because Carter stopped supporting the Shah, and now the regime is in power because they, and it's not clear who they is, they want it. This is not a. This is a disease, as I said, and and of course you can never make a change if you if you entirely believe that it's the outside powers who determine who is in your government and and how's your life. You can never um you can never bring about change. Um, so we need to we need to counter that. We need to be less obsessed about um you know the diplomatic engagements of the Islamic Republic and a little bit more concerned about what we in the opposition are able to do to increase our own power. 
um, and and build up our own credible alternative to the regime. So final thoughts on where we're going and where we are a year later? I think a year later, as I said, it was a sobering moment that we found out despite the heroic sacrifice of, of Iranian people, um, despite you know more than 22,000 people were arrested and thrown into jail, um, unfortunately, the Iranian political opposition um, basically doesn't uh, really exist as an organized force. Um, and this is a, the, the regime has survived for one reason. Um, and one, so I could say for two reasons. First, it's, it's repression, right? Obviously, so it's, it's sheer capacity for brutality, um, which brings a tenacity, right? Khamenei is not the kind of guy who gets on a plane and leaves. Um, he will kill, um, you know, I, he, I mean, he's the one who consoled Bashar Assad, a man who killed 600,000 of, of his own people, but he did keep the government, right? And that's the goal there. That's the uh, number one reason as well. The number two reason is, as I've also said throughout this interview, that we do not have, we have not yet built a credible alternative to the Islamic Republic. And if we wanted to change, that's the only way. There would be no, um, there, there can be no overthrowing of the Islamic Republic without a credible, organized political alternative to be built to it. And I think last year showed that we didn't have it from before. It hurt and we couldn't build it. Um, throughout the year um, if we want to be ready for the next time as there inevitably will be a next time of of political protests and people coming out we need to build that alternative Harris you have a book out um, can you tell us more about that uh, <clears throat> What Iranians Want Woman Life Freedom is the title of the book it comes out in, in February um, and I wrote this book because you know when we talk about Iran and when we talk about um the movements there, we often sort of have a negative image, by which I mean we talk about how terrible the government is and how brutal the regime is. And of course, there's no there's no doubt about any of that. But I wanted to write about um, the positive visions of that Iranians have had. What are their demands? Why is it that Iranians come out time and time again, get killed in their hundreds? Um, thousands of Iranians um, have died in protest movements, you know, in, in, in the years before, um, in the last you know couple of decades. Um, why is it that they risk their lives and they still come out? So I wanted to give a positive vision of, of let's say, the ecological movement in Iran, a movement against censorship, a movement for women's rights, a movement even for Afghan refugees, a movement for a different foreign policy. So each chapter of the book really opens up um, one uh, angle of, of Iranian demands, if you will, and Iranian movements. Um, and, you know, I'm born in 1988. Uh, felt like I sort of owed it to my generation and that of after a genera- of, of people who have suffered uh, nothing but defeats in a way um, but they've never stopped uh, struggling for a, for a better Iran and a struggle that I'm sure will go on and I wrote this book to capture some of those uh, demands of Iranians of as I said my generation and, and a few after and, and when is that out in February do you say right brilliant well I hope everybody purchases it and uh, reads your previous books as well um Arash, thank you, thank you much, so much for joining us on BNE and Telenews. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.